that, let us now turn to today's passage, Mark chapter 9, uh, verses 38 to 50. It's Mark 9, 38 to 50. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Good morning. It's good to be with you, good to worship with you here in person, good to have you join us virtually. If we've not met at this point in time, my name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. We are back in the book of Mark today for our Sunday morning teaching series. And if you were tracking while David was reading, you realize this is a little bit of an odd section because there's a number of different things that Jesus is saying that at first glance don't really seem to go with each other. So in the first couple verses, you get a little bit about insiders and outsiders. Next, you have this little piece about serving people. Then you've got some stuff on how bad hell really is. And it all ends with this sort of random discussion about salt. And it's really tempting to just decide, well, I'm just going to pull something out of there, and I'm going to focus on that. I'm going to get something out of this. I'm going to get a moral, a maxim, some good kind of thing to do, some kind of timeless truth because it's all kind of disconnected. If you do that, what are you doing? You're treating the Bible like it's a bag full of marbles, and you can just reach in, pull one out, study it as though it was separated from all the rest, look at it, and then put it back in the bag, pull another one out. Don't do that. That's not how the Bible works, and that's not why Jesus has put all of these together. What is Scripture? Scripture is not a loose connection of randomly organized truth statements. True scripture is what? It's telling a story. And as we enter into that story, that story is supposed to correct the way that we look at the rest of the world. We, we see God a little differently. We see each other differently. We see how we're supposed to live differently. Which means that there's a necessary connection. If Jesus is going to have a conversation, there's a necessary connection between the different pieces. And he thought that he was making a larger point that was absolutely critical for the disciples to get. 
Let's back up a little bit. We'll get a little bit of the context, and maybe that will help us then see the organic connection between the different parts. Jesus is in the middle of a conversation with his disciples. He started this conversation in the passage that we read last week. He told his disciples initially that the Son of Man had to be delivered over into the hands of men, killed, and then rise again. And his disciples thought that the appropriate response to that new revelation was to talk about who which one of them was the greatest. That's the immediate context then for what Jesus is saying. His disciples are consumed with their own greatness. They're not really listening to everything that he has to say. They've rejected in part some of what he believes, and Jesus did not reject them. He continues with them. He's still trying to get uh, into their worlds. And so last week he started his response to them by saying that in the kingdom of God, greatness is not measured by how much others serve you. Greatness is measured by how much you serve others. Today, we're listening to the rest of this conversation. We are listening to his response, to the disciples' response to his initial teaching. We're hearing his response to their knee-jerk focus on themselves and on their own greatness. That's the immediate context. If you were to slide back out a little bit further, a little bit larger context, you would remember that this is not the first time that Jesus has had this conversation. The first time that he said to his disciples that he had to be rejected, suffer, and die, Peter immediately took him aside and rebuked him. Jesus pushed back, rebuked Peter, uh, saying that what he was doing was satanic. And then Jesus went on. He said, not only do I need to suffer and die, but if anyone wants to follow after me, they also have to walk a path of suffering and death. That if they wanted to follow him, they would have to deny themselves, take up their cross in order to do so. And so this conversation that we're listening, into, listening to today fits within this larger message of what does it mean to follow Christ? What does it mean to be his disciple? To expect a life of suffering as you join the Messiah in his mission to a world under the power of evil. This conversation then is the product of what happens when Jesus' call to pick up your cross comes into conflict with your own internal desire for greatness for what you can get out of following him, rather than what it will cost you to do so. It's what you and I need to hear when the cost of discipleship confronts our desire to have the best life that we possibly can make for ourselves. It's what happens when Jesus is calling to lose our lives for his sake collides with our desire to save our lives. When you see this larger context, then Jesus' conversation today becomes very unified, and you'll see two things emerge from it as we go through it. First, you relearn the number one thing that defines your life as a disciple. The thing that influences all of your decisions and all of your actions. You see what defines your life as a disciple. And second, you see how radical you have to be if you're going to follow Jesus. You see how seriously you have to take the life of discipleship. Just two things for today, then. What defines you as a disciple and how radical you have to be in order to follow Christ. First, what defines you? Jesus just got done telling the disciples that greatness is measured by service. That was last week. And the very next thing that we hear is from John speaking for the disciples. And he says, verse 38, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Now think about what he just said. 
we happen to run into someone who's doing exactly what you taught us to do. But in that moment, Jesus, we did not think to ourselves, wow, the sovereignty of God is at work right now. This exorcist and us just happened to cross paths. God is clearly up to something right now. This guy is serving other people, and we're connecting with him. That means, then, that God is about to do something really cool, and we just want to give ourselves to that, regardless of, of what that costs us. They did not think that. They also didn't think to themselves, huh, that's weird. We're supposed to cast out demons in Jesus' name. We struggled with that. This guy's actually doing it. I wonder if he's thinking of that like it's, you know, just sort of a magic word, or if he's actually passionate about Jesus. I wonder if he's really wrapped his life, centered it all around Jesus and what Jesus is doing. They didn't think that either. What did they think? They thought, he's not following us. He's not following us. Where's the center of gravity in that phrase? It's on the us. Jesus just told them that those who are great in the kingdom of God are those who serve. Those who orient themselves outwardly toward others, outwardly toward meeting other people's needs. And his disciples are still thinking inwardly. He's not following us. Sally and I took a couple counseling classes many years back, and the professor used an illustration that has been helpful to us over the years. He talked about a kindergarten party at school. One little child was celebrating their birthday, and that child was the center of attention. Most of the class was happy to celebrate with them. They got to enjoy the party. They got treats that they normally didn't have. And so they were happy that this person had a birthday that they all then got to celebrate. Except for one little person who was not happy. They were upset because they wanted the attention for themselves. They weren't happy to participate, to have cupcakes and fun that they didn't normally get. They wanted more. They wanted to be the center, and so they kept acting out until one of the teachers or one of the aides went over to them and said, it's not your party. The prof went on to say, that's what all of our hearts need to hear over and over and over and over again because we keep falling into the belief that all of life is what? It, it's, it's our party that we are always the center of our worlds all the time, that that's the functional way we approach life. And we need to keep being brought back to this place where we realize that in a very important sense, this world is not about us. It wasn't made by us. It's not sustained by us. But it was made by and sustained by another. And therefore, even though God has made it for us in part to enjoy, we are not the center that everything else in the universe then revolves around. It revolves around him. Its glory is for him. And that means that in a very real sense, our lives are for him. We were made for him. It means that you and I are not here to take center stage, not even in our own lives. Our goal is not to draw all the attention to ourselves that we possibly can, to be the sun in our solar system. Instead, we get to be the planets in his solar system, revolving around him. And that's really hard to hang on to. 
It's very ironic. We did not give ourselves life. We did not choose to be born. <laughs> we chose nothing about the circumstances of our birth, of the when, the where, the to whom we were born. We chose nothing about ourselves, and yet we come believing that we are autonomous human beings, that we owe our lives to nothing and to no one, and we assume that this is our life, and it's, that it's our life to live as we choose, and we forget that, no, there's a much bigger picture that we fit into that's actually a privilege to fit into. And since Sally's and my heart struggle with those kinds of things, when things didn't go the way that we wanted them to, we would gently remind ourselves for a number of years by saying to ourselves, it's not your party. We need to remind ourselves of whose party it really is. The disciples need that reminder that it's not about whether this man is following them, it's about whether or not he's following Christ. And to underline that that's the real issue, Jesus says, do not stop him. Why? Because he's doing this mighty work in my name. He's not in it for himself. He's not doing it in his own name. Not doing it to make a name for himself. He's doing it to make a name for Christ. That focus on Christ then becomes the recurring theme that you step through in these next several verses. It comes in several different forms. But the central idea is that everything you do has to revolve around Christ. It has to have something to do with Jesus. So verse 39, the issue at stake is, where does this man stand with respect to Christ, not with respect to the disciples? And Jesus' conclusion is, he's doing good works in my name, in Jesus' name. And because of that, he's not going to soon speak evil of me. The issue is whether or not the man will speak evil of Christ. And so the primary point of reference is Christ, not the man, not the disciples. You see something similar in verse 41. Jesus says that there is a reward for anyone who gives the disciples the least little thing, like a cup of water, for this reason, because they belong to Christ. He's saying that a person's gift is rewarded, it's, it's weighed, it's assessed on the basis of their motivation. And the question that's asked is, are they giving? Not because of how important or unimportant the receiver is in their eyes, but are they giving because of how important Christ is to them? Is the giver so in love with Christ that all it takes is seeing someone else who loves Christ, who belongs to Christ. And this first person then just opens up their heart to the second person, simply and solely because both of them are connected to Christ. Is Jesus that central to the first disciple and to the way that they live their life? Or verse 42 says that it is especially dangerous to cause one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. And the commentaries are all agreed here. This is not talking about little children who happen to believe in Jesus. This is a universal thing, and the descriptor is those who believe in me. Therefore, it's talking about anyone who believes in Christ. It's talking about a disciple. And what Jesus says is that there are dire consequences if you cause any follower of Christ to sin, to stumble, to fall away from God because of how you treated them. Again, what's important here about these people that you might sin against? It's that they believe in Christ, that they are connected to him, 
that they get their worth and their value from their relationship with him. And so Jesus is basically saying in this section, if you want to follow me, then you can no longer base your decisions and your actions on yourself, on what you think is best or what you think will enhance your life. That's not what I'm about. I did not come to earth so that you could finally have everything the way that you've always wanted it. The fact that you wanted to be the center focus of your life, the sun around which everything else orbits, so that you could order things according to what you think is best, that's exactly the problem that I came to rescue you from. And it would be a really good thing for you to be rescued. Because your way of ordering things with your own greatness creates all these relational frictions. You have debates about who's greatest among you. Serving others that's not even on your radar. You leave the needy still needing. You exclude people who are serving. You try to shut them down. This is the kind of community that you're trying to build with you as the center of your own world. What kind of life is that? I came to rescue you from that life. You can have a much better life by following me. By replacing your self-centered world with a God-centered one. Now, why is that better? Because God doesn't need anything from you. He's not looking to have a better life by getting something from you. He's already full. He's already overflowing. Put him at the center like he should be, and his life will flow from him to you. It won't be a drain on you. You can have all of that, Jesus says. That's why I'm here. But you can't have that if you follow you. You have to follow me. You have to base your decisions and your actions on me and on how things either do or do not connect with me. And so what Jesus is doing in this section is unpacking how following him impacts how you treat others who are also following him. How following him then generates a community, a new society, of people who are blessed, who are living well together. And so there are two guiding principles that he gives us here for how we live with each other. One is negative, one is positive. The negative one, he tells us in verse 42, you must not hinder each other from pursuing Christ. You must not do anything that will cause people to believe in Jesus less. Your conduct, your actions, should encourage people to greater faith, to believing more in the reality of God and in the reality of his power to transform people. Don't live in such a way that people end up with less confidence in God. That's number one. Secondly, verse 41, you must nurture and serve anyone who's following Christ, giving them what they need, not because you're impressed with them or because you hope that maybe they might be able to do something for you, not even because you like them personally. You must nurture and serve people simply because they belong to Christ. You didn't get to choose who's part of this new community. Jesus does. And it's your privilege now to serve anyone that he brings into this community with you. So two principles. Don't give believers, other disciples, reason to fall away from Christ and serve them. Give them what they need simply because of their relationship to Christ which all sounds pretty reasonable. 
Nothing here that's too radical, maybe even stuff that's a little obvious. It's kind of like, well, how else would you treat people? Don't make them sin and meet their needs. It seems kind of obvious. And so my fear this morning is that every single one of us, myself included, will hear this and will all collectively agree, will nod, and will walk out of here not doing anything differently. And that's dangerous. You remember what I said from last week about being able to read Scripture and not be convicted by it because you want something else that gets in the way of hearing God. These teachings could easily fit into that category. You and I could both easily think to ourselves, well, I've never told anybody to stop casting out demons in Jesus' name. This doesn't really apply to me. I've never excluded anyone because they weren't following us. Okay, the disciples needed to hear this. I get that. I think I'm probably okay. That's what it's like when your heart gets in the way of hearing from God. You can see the words on the page. You can hear the words. You can agree with the words. And then you can walk away thinking that the words have nothing to do with you. Thinking that the Holy Spirit kind of wasted his time recording this and keeping it for us to hear 2,000 years later. That you, you kind of wish Jesus had said something else. Something a little more exciting, a little more interesting. That he really didn't need to waste his breath with this. It is so easy to hear God speak and assume it has nothing to do with you. Let's see then if we can do a little bit of work so that we can bring it home. Let's start by realizing just how personal all of this is. That serving, when nurturing someone else, is what? It's both personal and it's physical. That you don't give a cup of water to a generic classification of people, to women, to men, to this ethnicity, to that race, to some mental construct of people, but you give a cup of water to an individual. And when you do that, you're doing something real. You don't talk about water to a thirsty person. You recognize the thirst. And then having seen the need, recognize the need, you actually move and act to meet the need in this physical world, in a very physical, kind of tangible way. Serving is personal, just like not serving is personal. Refusing to serve is personal. That also happens when you see a face. When you see someone and you either consciously or unconsciously pull away. You see someone and you turn away because you don't feel any obligation to them. Even though God has sovereignly put them in your path so that you just happen to run into them. You see them, but you don't take seriously what God is doing. It doesn't even occur to you that there's a vertical dimension in And so you don't give this other person what they need. And in that moment, you are stumbling them. Why? You are causing them to wonder if God really does transform self-oriented people so that they become outward givers. Because they're not experiencing that from you, even though you claim to be a Christian. You're giving them a reason not to believe or at least to question the faith and you're undermining the community that Jesus is building. 
So since both serving and not serving are personal, since nourishing people and stumbling people are personal, we have to ask, where do you and I, where are we likely to do that? And as the renewal community, we're probably more likely to do that passively than actively. We are probably more likely as a group of people to neglect people than we are to go out of our way to harm someone or to deliberately hold things back from other people. We're not a nasty church, but we could passively neglect people. Let's think about it this way. Maybe this will help. The disciples just happened to run into a guy, someone who happened to occupy the same physical space they did, and they did not reach out to him to serve him, to nourish him spiritually. Instead, they insisted, you need to follow us, that you need to come to where we are. Don't you find yourself tempted to do that every single Sunday? You just happen to be in a room full of people. And I am sure that there is at least one person every Sunday in this room, one person who you don't know, or at least one person who has lived an entire week that you don't know anything about, who has joys, who has sorrows that they need to share. But how often do you make the effort to reach outside of your own circle? There are people after the service who make a beeline for the door. Why? They don't have a group and us to be part of. If you don't have someone who engages with you, I've been told that those five minutes after the service are some of the loneliest of the week. And I'm sadly talking to us, to people who know how to do this. You know how to make friends at school when you need to. You know how to network, develop new connections. Why not take what you already know how to do, step outside of your comfort zone, and do that here on Sunday? Notice those who need a cup of water. If you're only ever catching up with friends, you are overlooking, passively ignoring others who need to be nourished in their faith. Who is that? Maybe you're overlooking our visitors, overlooking our college students, overlooking people who don't have families or whose families don't come with them. People who belong to Christ, but who can, we can easily pass over because they're not following us. They're not part of our group. See, this is not the job of the welcoming team or the staff. This is the job of the church, of the community. It's really not that hard to do. What's a cup of water look like to someone who needs to connect? who needs to know that they are valued by Christ, and the tangible expression of that is how they are valued by Christ's people. What's that look like? It's a matter of learning their name, hearing where they come from, asking, what's your past week been like? Ask them where they've been excited about what Christ is leading them into, or where are they struggling to follow him? It's a matter of being interested in someone, asking a few questions, and then saying, hey, can we pray real quickly before we go? Some of the best ministry of our church should be taking place after the benediction. As the people of God who are energized by praise and worship, energized by the scripture, then get together and do more than catch up. Instead, they, they what? They, they serve. 
out of the overflow of what they've already received. And young people, I'm not leaving you out. Talking to you too, if a new person comes out to a youth group, we can't let them feel like they're an outsider. We have to embrace them. They can't walk away thinking, well, they, the, the vibe was, I'm not part of them. Our mindset has to be renewed so that we think, if you believe in Jesus, we belong together. Let's connect. Let's share our lives. That has to happen, young people, at youth group. It has to happen at youth events. And it needs to happen here on Sunday morning. We have to be a community that reaches out to each other instead of sitting back waiting for someone to reach out to us, waiting for others to make our lives more comfortable. If you're waiting for others to do that, you're still living as the center of your life. You're not following Christ as your new center. You still think it's your party. And this is actually one of the strongest witnesses that we can have to our world at this time. And that is in the depth and the health of real relational connection, the kind that Jesus makes possible for us as a community. Our world is constantly engaged, absorbed in what? In our electronic devices. These devices are supposed to help us connect with each other. The result of all of our technology so far has been that we have less ability to connect that we're actually further from each other, more distant. Maybe you've had this experience. You ever been in a room where everybody's sitting down and everybody's in a device? What is that? That is mass isolation. And when you consider that across the the globe, you realize it's happening on an unprecedented scale. It's mind-boggling. Following Jesus does what? It pushes against that isolation. It helps us connect with each other, with real people in real time and space. Part of discipleship is forming with other people the kind of relationship that Jesus forms with us. The kind that does not exclude other people like the disciples were, holding them off at arm's length. He wasn't following us. Instead, following Jesus forms relationships that nurture each other so that each person is now better off. So when the service ends today, let me challenge you. If God has put you in this room, he has more in mind for you than to see how fast you can get out of it. He has more in mind for you you, than that you would hang out only with people that you like being with today. So let me challenge you. Make one new friend today. Learn one new name. Get your radar on so that you can notice who here needs to be encouraged. Invite one person to be part of your group. Pray for someone before you leave. This is part of what it means to serve like Jesus serves. And to help us take this really seriously, Jesus says in verse 42 that this is not optional. That you have two options in life, two choices. You can either serve his people, which leads to a reward. You can help them. Or you can hurt them. You can cause them to lose their confidence in Christ. And if that's the case, it would be better to have a frightening, irreversible death. Because God is absolutely furious with the spiritual pride that thinks life is all about you. 
that thinks it really is your party. He's furious with pride that has no consideration for the community that he's building, that has no concern for the individual people who make up that community. Okay, that's point one. Christ has to shape all of your life, your motivations, your actions as a disciple, and this is most clearly seen in how you treat his people. Point two, much shorter. How radical do you have to be as his disciple? Jesus goes on to talk about how seriously you have to wrestle with the inward pull of sin, the sin that keeps making you want to be the center of your own life. And he uses these awful metaphors to get his point across, cutting off, tearing out different body parts. We know they're metaphors for two reasons. One, the Old Testament frowns on, it prohibits any kind of masochism, any kind of bodily mutilation. This is not something that Jesus would endorse. And second, because as Jesus has already pointed out a couple chapters earlier, Mark chapter 7, the source of sin is not in our bodies, it's in our hearts, which means you can't get rid of sin by getting rid of a body part. These are metaphors, but what do the metaphors mean? Verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If what you're doing is sin, then take radical steps to end it. Stop doing it. Or verse 45, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If where you're going puts you in places where you sin, take radical steps to stop going there. Or verse 47, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. If what you're watching, seeing, looking at, reading, If that's a source of temptation to you, something that draws you away from Christ, then stop looking at those things. Take radical, irreversible steps so that you don't do things that are evil, so that you don't go to places that are bad for you, so that you don't look at stuff that tempts you to sin. Now, do you see what Jesus has done here? He says not only is it possible for you to stumble somebody else, it's possible for you to stumble yourself. You're the one who believes in Jesus, but you can lead you into sin. And because that's the case, you need to fight. You need to take seriously this battle against what might stumble you. You have to take sin seriously, and you have to engage it as strongly as you possibly know how to do. Because there are only two ways of life that are open to you. You can either embrace a relatively easy life, one where you do whatever it is that you want to do. That's a life that will lead you away from God. Or you can sacrifice things in life. You can sacrifice the things that you could have. Sacrifice going to the places where you could go. Sacrifice seeing things that you could see. You could sacrifice all of that because you want what God offers you even more than what all those things would offer you. And Jesus paints these two options very vividly. Verses 43 and 45, you can enter life. You can enter life and everything that goes along with life. You can enter a life where you will be able to do things with your hands that are worth doing. Where you'll be able to visit places that are only good to go. Where you'll only see things that are worth seeing. You can enter into life. You can do and visit and see things that you enjoy that don't bring any guilt that don't harm others, 
that make other people's lives better. You can enter life, verse 47, the kingdom of God that is just bursting with the life of God, where you will realize you did not miss out on anything by sacrificing anything. Or you can enter hell, verse 48, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, where everything is in an eternal state of decay and corruption, where there is no life, no positive life force, no goodness, nothing worthwhile, where it just hurts and it never stops hurting, where it's not just the absence of God's presence that hurts, the absence of life, but where there's also the presence of his wrath, wrath that you and I cannot begin to imagine, wrath that is so bad that Jesus conjures up this horrible image of verse 43 of unquenchable fire, fire that you chose for yourself because you refused to deal with your sin. Now, is this literal fire? It's probably more symbolic to go along with the metaphors. But if it's symbolic, that means the reality is worse. Because you would not paint this ugly a picture if the reality was a little bit less than this. That means that the reality of hell is worse than unquenchable fire. Jesus means to horrify you, to shock you and me out of our complacency. This is meant to motivate us to take sin seriously, to take your need to fight it even more seriously. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying what you are doing today, how you treat discipleship right now, how seriously you take his call to nurture and to serve his people, how seriously you fight your temptations toward pride, to place yourself at the center of your world, to stumble others by letting them know that they are not as important as you are, that they're outside the right group, how seriously you take discipleship is mapping out an eternal destiny for yourself right now. That the way you live is organically connected to what your eternal destiny will be. That you are shaping that destiny by how you live now. That you will either live your life for the sake of Christ, wrapping everything that you do around the source of life, which means what? You are going to be led into life. That's your goal. Or you will live with some other purpose, placing yourself at the center which leads to endless decay and fire. Jesus is not playing here. The gloves are off. Paraphrasing Sinclair Ferguson, there are only two choices here. Either you can kill sin, or it will kill you. And you have to face the fact that killing sin comes with a cost. You have to intentionally cut things out of your life that you could have if you wanted, that you could do if you wanted, that other people outside of the church would say, well, go ahead and have those things. Things that would be easy to have and do, and you have to deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Christ. 
that means that the road to life, the road to entering the kingdom of God, is a road of suffering. And that's what leads Jesus to say, verse 49, for everyone will be salted with fire, which seems like such an odd phrase. That phrase only makes sense when you step back into the world of ancient Israel, specifically into her religious world, where both fire and salt were key ingredients in Israelite sacrifices. So when you brought an offering to God, you added salt to that offering, and then it was all burned. Okay, that's part of the picture here. Put that in the back of your mind then as we unpack what he's saying. For everyone will be salted with fire. The idea is that both followers of Jesus and non-followers will experience some kind of fire, some kind of pain. And yet you realize those fires are different because they result in different outcomes. Those who do not follow Jesus will experience the unquenchable, unquenchable fire of hell, a fire that destroys. He's already said that. But those who follow Christ also experience a kind of fire, pain in their lives. But it's a different kind of fire. For the follower of Jesus, it's a fire that leads to life. It's a fire that does not destroy. What does that mean? It, it, it's actually a fire then that purifies. It's a fire that is associated with this sacrifice, with worship. It's the fire they experience as they voluntarily sacrifice what they could have in this life out of their devotion to God. It's the pain that they feel when they refuse to do or go or see what and where they could simply because they're mindful of God. Because they're aware of what delights God and what doesn't. It's a fire that they willingly choose as they deny themselves and offer themselves to God, as they themselves are the sacrifice of their life, as their whole life becomes this offering to God, to the one who has come to rescue them. It's their sacrifice of what they could have in this life simply because they want him more than they want anything else. Because they've been found by a God who loves them so deeply because they find his love so satisfying that even though it's hard, and even though it hurts at times to cut and tear things out of their lives, they gladly give up everything that takes them away from him. This is the antidote. This is the antidote to a self-centered, self-absorbed life that's miserable now, that ruins relationships and destroys the community. The antidote is to radically offer yourself to God, so that every part of your life now orbits around him and around what he loves. Which then brings us to the most important question of this morning. And that is why? Why should God accept what we offer him? Let's be honest. You and I both know that we have not taken sin this seriously. Sure, we may have fought it some, but we have not gone to the extremes that Jesus is talking about. Each one of us has gone and seen and done things that God hates. And we've done that simply because it's what we wanted in the moment. We've done those things because we acted as if this is our party, that we are the center of our lives. 
And in that process, each of us has overlooked people who belong to Christ. And we have not served and nurtured everyone that we could have in his name for his sake because we've been too busy living for our sake. What hope then do we have that God will now accept our offering, our sacrifice of ourselves? It's because we do not depend on our sacrifice to make God accept us. We're depending on his sacrifice for us. Jesus never went or did or looked at anything that God hates. He offered himself completely to God throughout his entire life, wrapped every minute of every day completely around God and around what God loves. He constantly resisted sin while you and I have regularly given in. And he poured himself out for God's people, serving them, giving them what they needed. He earned a place with God by the way that he lived his entire life, only deserved to be with God, to live. And then Jesus was salted with fire. Not the purifying kind. The unquenchable hell kind. This is what he kept telling the disciples that he had to do. That he had to suffer and die as a sacrifice. A substitute for them. That he would take on their sins and the sins of all of his people and he would bear the full weight and the consequences of those sins so that we could then enjoy the reward that he had earned. That's what scripture means in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 when it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was salted with fire. The unquenchable hell kind that you and I earned for ourselves so that on the cross he was cut off from the life of God. Cut off from the source of life that we cut ourselves off from. And he bore the full wrath of God that we should have felt. He sacrificed himself when he didn't need to. Took on the judgment of God that you and I deserved for one reason. So that he could absorb all of it. So that he could utterly exhaust God's wrath against our sin and against our failures to, failures to serve until there was no more hell left for us. He did that not because he needed to for himself, but so that you and I can now offer ourselves to God so that we can offer to orbit around him and God does not laugh at us, does not mock us. He smiles at us and accepts us. He welcomes us because we belong to Christ. He accepts our offering now because we belong to Christ. Because what belongs to Christ now belongs to us. And if God accepts Christ's offering, which he did, he raised him after three days, then we have confidence he'll accept ours too. Because Christ's sacrifice purifies ours and makes it acceptable to God. Why would you want to follow this God who calls you to suffer here on earth 
on the road that leads to eternal life with him? Because you're not going to get a better deal than this. And you're not going to get to be with a better person. Join him, follow him, wrap your whole life around him. And when you do that, you'll discover that you don't just talk about him in the past, what he did 2,000 years ago, but you start to experience his love right now for you in the present, the same love that drove him to do what he did 2,000 years ago, that he has for you now and for all eternity. Lord Jesus, enlarge our hearts to catch a glimpse of what it is that you've done for us. Give us gratitude that just pours back out of us, recognizing how great you are. Lord, let us feel that love and let us desire life, life with you, far more than we want it to desire the things that we could have in this world. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Bring your word to bear in our lives. Make it true for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand together as we...